0: Look, it is a, a privilege to be, in, be invited here, and I was just reflecting uh, what sort of things am I going to bring to this this afternoon. You've got a terrific program here, which has, I think, been extremely supportive to the clinical groups, those that are working in clinical practice, uh, whether it's the physicians or the dietitians or the chiropractors, <clears throat> pardon me, or the nurses. Now, my role as an academic and a researcher Uh, what do I actually bring to the table? Now, I'm not sure if my... Let me have a look at that. What I do want to talk about is the relationship between lifestyle, ageing, and free radical damage. What I'm hoping to do here is develop or at least present a perspective, a model, if you like, for which you can start to see some of the things that Dr Schaefenberg, which Tim has talked about, and uh, which Skip have all talked about in relation to health. I want you to try and understand some of the mechanisms which might make us a little bit more intelligent about how we imply it i shouldn 't apologize for anything up front, but it 's uh, something i can 't help doing. It may be a little bit simple for you i 've tried to make it as uh, as clear as possible, and uh, we 're going to run through a couple of things here, and in half an hour it doesn 't give me a lot of time to give detail, but please ask questions if, uh, if there are more detail that you want now a little bit of background we 're actually the well i 'm the head of the Australasian Research Institute. I have had a, a full time academic appointment at the University of New South Wales in Pharmacology, as Nick was saying. Uh, last night. But uh, about uh, about eight years ago, um, we sort of eventually got a a research centre at the Sand, saying this is an institution that has been around for over 100 years and we didn't actually have dedicated research, although ad hoc uh, sort of stuff was going on. But we felt that it was necessary to do it within the context of this hospital because this was a hospital that was established around keeping people well. And not only keeping people well, but teaching them how to stay well. Always an acute care facility, but uh, we felt that we needed to do a little bit more work there. So we actually got uh, our, we call it the pool house. It's just next to the pool and uh, it is a demountable. We have 250 square metres of space. We have our offices and that sort of thing in the front and our lab at the back. But uh, it's given us a space to work. Now we collaborate with a lot of people and Because I still have uh, some broad academic connections, I have some great uh, uh, collaborators that like to work with us. But we have a motto, and that is discovering the science of wellness. Now, I hope that that means something to you at the end. And as I say, as I walk through, I want to be able to look at, you know, in a sense, mechanisms producing these lifestyle diseases that we've talked about, and then hopefully take you through how that might look like, broadly speaking, or at least in principle, about how we might be able to integrate that into our current healthcare practice. So Sydney Adventist Hospital is our primary um, 95% stakeholder and then Avondale Sanitarium and Adventist Health all uh, are members of our our board. All right, let me just have a look. This is something that will be familiar to all of you and this is not anything of a surprise. Leading causes of death in Australia, 16% uh, the ischemic heart diseases, 8% stroke, dementia, particularly Alzheimer's, 6%. Uh, the sort of respiratory diseases, around about 9%, diabetes about 3%, and then you've got a number of others. Um, this is sort of running to be around about 50% of the diseases that cause uh, death in Australia are actually have a strong link to both age and lifestyle choices. Now, I want you to think, and I'll hopefully get you to think about what it means to actually have these diseases, this degenerative process, uh, and why there is a link, certainly, between age and lifestyle choices. But as uh, Dr Schaffenberg was saying, We're all actually ageing, probably, at least in the community, a lot faster than what we need to. What's the mechanism for that? Well, underpinning a lot of that, the research that's been around now for a little while but is becoming much more clear, this concept of oxidative stress. Now, how many people have heard of oxidative stress? Now, if I say free radical damage, of course, everybody will have heard of it. And essentially, for the purposes of what I'm talking about now, oxidative stress is really when free radical damage has got to the point where it's actually causing more damage to the tissue than it can actually cope with and repair. So this is a case of lots of oxidative stress. And certainly the pathophysiology, when the, uh, you know, I call them the boffins that look in the laboratory and they sort of open apart that bit of vascular tissue that might be taken out by a vascular surgeon somewhere, looks at and goes, oh, look at that. We've got macrophage infiltration and we've got, and this is sort of carbonyl formation here. And they go, hmm, that's all inflammation, oxidative stress. So there's no question that this plays a significant role, and it seems to underpin that pathological process. So it's actually what's driving the damage to the tissue. So we'll talk about that. But let me just uh, quote from Ellen White, and I like this one. Our bodies are built up from the food we eat. Those foods should be chosen that best supply the elements needed for the building up of the body. In this choice, appetite is not a safe guide. Through wrong habits of eating, the habit has become perverted, or the appetite has become perverted, Often it demands food that impairs health and causes, uh, causes weakness instead of strength. The disease and suffering that everywhere prevail are largely due to popular errors in regard to diet. Now, if that were true when she wrote it, which is around you know the turn of last century, it is certainly true of today. So while we've actually had, and there has been, lots of work that have been done particularly around the nutrition deficiency diseases, and then... On, uh, associated with the antimicrobials or the microbial diseases. What we've got now has been pointed out over and over again in essentially every talk is that we've got diseases of overnutrition, particularly high calories. And essentially this is creating problems that the body can't handle. It's not set up for it. And hopefully we'll get a perspective on that shortly. So just looking at it in relationship to age, you would all be aware of this, but I thought it would be good to put the statistics here in any case. In terms of cancers... Age distribution of all cancers in Australia, uh, excluding uh, some of the uh, lung diseases, um, significantly increases after about middle age. I'm going to show you some data that we published last year and how it relates to some of this. But certainly cancer, and of course a cancer is just a dysregulated genome, isn't it? It's not like some people think is, uh, this is this rogue cell that wants to take over the body and it's, you know got its evolutionary advantage. That, of course, it's a little deaf, dumb and blind cell which has had something damaged to the signal that it would have normally listened to, and it can't hear it anymore, so the only thing it knows how to do is actually grow. And then ultimately some of those can metastasize. and we know, of course, depending on the tissue, um, it can become uh, uh, lethal. But notice that, that that has to happen as a result of damage that's occurred to the genome, which has not been repaired, and then the cell, the other failsafe, it hasn't died where it should have died. It's stayed alive. So here you've clearly got an issue where... Somewhere around sort of the, the 58 mark, more damage is occurring than essentially is being repaired. Is that right? Certainly in relation to cancers. Then you've got cardiovascular disease, again going up fairly steadily, and this is, uh, you know, we're getting a lot more people down here than we should, but certainly going up again with age, and this is damage to the endothelium within the blood vessel, and as was mentioned before, this is related to plaques, et cetera. and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But notice also that it's actually also in the uh, dementias. Now, this is the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease, which really starts to kick up after the age of 60. Now, a little bit of background for me. I actually came, uh, and my wife considers me a skeptic, uh, when it comes to any of the uh, sort of uh, uh, complementary areas. And uh, um, I remember working, and, and I was interested only in really the neurodegenerative diseases. We actually developed, uh, in the research that we did, we developed a treatment that did seem to work in terms of reducing oxidative damage. So it was very clear that oxidative damage was occurring. This seemed to be a primary driver. And the areas that I teach, actually, are uh, are pharmacokinetics, and I'm sure all of you will have enjoyed those. Um, Really, I'm not sure why not. Um, But pharmacokinetics and actually the um, uh, uh, pharmacology of neurological disease or neurodegenerative disease... So I was particularly interested in Alzheimer's and being able to stop those kind of degenerative processes. Now, we actually did develop a a combination therapy that seemed to work. We patented it and, in fact, even have sold it um, uh, to a large multinational company. Uh, But what was interesting about that is that it's almost pointless to actually give somebody a drug or at least something that might actually stop the process, almost pointless, when they already have started to develop mild cognitive impairment there is a significant loss of, uh, of neurons at that stage and certainly neuronal connections before they even start to pick it up clinically. What we need to do is actually pick it up way back here. Now, it's interesting, people like uh, Dr. Esselstyn, et cetera, which I'll show a little bit of his data later on, you can certainly reverse cardiovascular disease, but can you reverse Alzheimer's? Certainly not once you've gone so far. While there might be some, you know, you can sort of get some and there are some... Uh, Uh, progenitor cells, we might be able to sort of wake up. It's almost certain that you won't be able to. So you've actually got to come back way back here. Now, that was what actually introduced me to the whole idea of, well, what's actually the risk factors for it? How can you actually prevent this a lot earlier? And of course, the risk factors between cardiovascular disease, between Alzheimer's disease, is exactly the same, with a couple of exceptions, but they're essentially exactly the same. And it makes sense because the damage that we're doing back here is ultimately accumulating and you'll end up with... a cancer, heart disease, you keep doing it and you've got this privileged organ which I think God has sort of set as a relatively high priority, eventually that damage is going to continue working within that organ and ultimately you're going to end up with disease. So the very things that we're talking about to save in terms of heart disease, you're also going to save in terms of the degeneration within the central nervous system, unquestionably. But what happens when we age? So I'm just stepping you back and let's have a look at this in, uh, the, the concept now, I could have put a male up here, uh, but I thought I would just put up uh, a lady. But you can see that from the age of around about 20 up to 70, though I think she's a fairly attractive seven-year-old, there is clearly some changes that have gone. At least phenotypically. We're looking at just the way it looks, and I'm just conscious of time. When do I need to finish? Ten past? We've got all afternoon. Okay, 15 minutes up the front here. Okay. All right. So you can see that ultimately in terms of the skin, which of course is the body's largest organ, that there has been significant degeneration. So structural degeneration, functional decline, doesn't work quite as well as a barrier, doesn't have the same sort of elasticity. And this actually not only is occurring in the skin, but it's also occurring in other organs of the body too. Am I right? Now, if we wanted to age the skin faster, what's the best way of doing it? Yeah, get out into the sun. And the more time you spend out, the better. You know what sort of damage you're doing? You're, of course, damaging the DNA. Now, I'm going to cover off on that shortly. But you're actually damaging the progenitor cells, which are actually going to produce the next generation of cells for the skin. You can do the same thing. If I said, how would you actually damage the liver faster? Everybody in the community knows this. What would you do? Drink lots of alcohol. In fact, if you wanted to damage the brain faster, what would you do? More alcohol as well. In fact, it's interesting. I have an honor student that was doing some work on that this year. I don't have time to show you the results, but it was really quite fascinating. By the way, in the U.S. data, 80% of the people, obese people, have fatty liver. Yeah. And this is another thing which is actually setting up localized inflammatory activity around the liver. Yeah. So the point is that there are things that we're doing as we age. Now, we can actually increase this process or we can decrease it correct or at least decrease the i think we will all die at the end unless christ comes so there is actually i think an end now there are some people who work in this we don't consider ourselves working in the aging uh, research area uh, we consider ourselves working in the lifestyle degenerative processes but there are some people in the aging area thinking no 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 we'll be able to keep you living forever in fact just as a little aside i'm not sure but, look, there, there, is, uh, there was a company that actually in 2007 paid $720 million for a molecule, for the patents to a molecule. It was actually by uh, an Australian researcher who's in our department, um, for, uh, which stimulated what they call, or what I call, the, the longevity enzymes. Oh, longevity enzymes. Does anybody know the sirtuins? Come across the sirtuins, silent information regulators? Okay. I've just given 25 minutes, so I'm on. Um, But what's interesting there is that there are some people who think that you can keep living for a very long time. And we don't think that's the case, but we certainly can preserve health right up until older age. All right, so what causes that cumulative damage that we saw in in the skin, and it's also occurring in other tissue? What sort of things is happening? Now, I don't have to tell this audience that, of course, the body's made up of cells. We've got our organs, and they're all sort of arranged ultimately into cells, and then within that cell... And you know, of course, these are turning over all of the time. So, every organ, apart from some very long lived cells, which are actually in the central nervous system, but essentially your cells are turning over all of the time. You know, you've got, what is it, the skin lasts around about uh, four or five days, cheek, around about seven days, about a week, gut, four days, yeah, maybe four to six days, something like that. And then you've got, uh, you know, various blood cells living, you know, from three months up to a couple of years for some of the uh, the white cells, etc. So around the body, but the, essentially the body is turning over all of the time. So almost without question, every 15 years, you are a completely different person. Now, the cells that you've made from the previous generation to the next generation, if they have accumulated some damage which hasn't been repaired, will the next generation work quite as well as the previous generation of cells? They're not. So in a sense, if we're accumulating damage here, and that's not being repaired, now there is direct DNA damage and there is also what's called epigenetic changes. You've all heard of epigenetics? Okay, so see these are some of the sort of patterns that are are surrounding the genome which actually help it to switch on and switch off. But in any case, it is actually ultimately still changes to the way the genes are expressed which will actually make your organ work well or not work so well depending on that coordinated process. Okay, so that's with the DNA. So ultimately, if we want to age faster, we should accumulate damage here. Is that correct? And if we want to age less fast, we should try and reduce the amount of damage which is occurring there. Correct? Okay. So, and I'm just using the term free radicals, but uh, you'll forgive me. Um, uh, Oxidative, lots of oxidants, some of them are pro-oxidants. So we're talking about things here, and I won't put them up. But things like superoxide, hydrogen peroxide, hypochlorous acid, that type of thing. And this is something that the body produces. You can also take them in. I'm going to mention advanced glycation end products later on. Has anybody heard of advanced glycation end products? Okay, so a few of you have. We'll explain that a little bit more as well. But these are things that can come in and actually damage the DNA and ultimately result in long-term tissue damage or long-term reduced function of that tissue. So the higher the rate of DNA damage, the faster the aging process. All right. This is, uh, we published this this year. Uh, this was actually one of my honor students from last year, and uh, what we did was that we actually took, um, uh, we had some great cooperation from our, from our surgeons, and uh, we would actually have the, uh, uh, the, the poor little honor student there in theatre, and within 10 minutes, or relax, he would just, uh, you, know, you know, there's always little bits and pieces left over from surgery, is that correct? Stuff you don't need. <laughs> but just like a mechanic, you know, I don't know where that bolt went, but you know. So she would be there, waiting for these little bits and pieces, which were no longer necessary. And uh, and so then we would process them very quickly, because of course this research is hard to do, uh, because once you've excised something from the body, it starts to degenerate very, very quickly, and then of course you would get a very inaccurate reading. Um, So we were processing; we had them in within liquid nitrogen. We had them washed, and within liquid nitrogen, within ten minutes. In fact, they were washed and at minus 80 within about uh, three minutes of being excised. So very good quality tissue. This is all the way from eight-day-old circumcisions to a uh, 78-year-old hip replacement. Um, essentially, nothing else was wrong with these patients. This is just the males. Uh, the males give us better results, actually, in fact, than the females. This is from uh, pelvic non-sun-exposed skin. Uh, our assumption is it's non-sun-exposed. Um, but... We did a number of measures here, and uh, what we looked at was here we've actually just... This is DNA damage uh, accumulating as you get older. We also looked at different markers like protein, carbonyls, and etc. but I don't have time to show those. But consistently, we get an inflection point around about middle age, which suggests that there is a significant increase. The ladies actually go up uh, from, from zero, too, but they sort of head up a bit like that. Um, a little bit different to the males, but essentially the same thing. So still statistically significant increase, an inflection point coming around about middle age. What it's suggesting is that oxidative damage significantly increases after middle age. At least that's the potential. We also did in a series of red blood cells, which I'm not showing the data here, but um, uh, we saw exactly the same thing. And uh, what it means is that within that period of time, within that three months or so, that you can certainly have a significant accumulation. So you've got increased oxidative damage and it seems to accelerate after middle age. So where do these free radicals come from? Now, of course, accelerating after middle age, isn't that consistent, what we're seeing with the degenerative diseases as well? The increased risk of cancer, the increased risk of heart disease, increased risk of dementia, etc. What it does mean, I think, at this point is that is there a way in which you can reduce that? I think, yes, there is. And one of the things that we wanted to actually go back and follow up is that we've got some people who are in their sort of 70s and, and, well, early 70s in this case, who really aren't tracking like all of their cohort, the average part of the cohort. They're actually tracking down the bottom. And we're doing a similar study actually looking at it within the central nervous system. So I have a PhD student who's uh, been working with the anaesthetists again and, and uh, 20 different surgeons to, to actually get CSF which is done when people are doing spinals for various uh, uh, procedures. And we're seeing the same sort of thing, an accumulation within the central nervous system of these inflammatory oxidative markers. But um, uh, we've actually got some gaps. One is in the sort of uh, 20-year age group, and the other is in the 40 age group. So if there's anybody within this group who wants to uh, volunteer for a spinal tap... <laughs> seriously. All right. Yeah, we're getting a little bit desperate now. We're thinking these are the only two gaps we've got, and in fact it's very hard to get those people because you don't find many coming in for surgery for, uh, within those two age groups. Um, but yes, we haven't got ethics for that one yet. But uh. So where do the free radicals come from? How do they actually generate it? Well, normal metabolism, so conversion of the sugars and fats into energy. I'll remind you a little bit of the biochemistry again shortly. Immune and inflammatory reactivity, I'll go a bit faster. Um, So when the immune system is switched on, we know that that is an excellent source of being able to produce lots of free radical damage. Uh, And in the food, so this is where these advanced glycation end products come in, and this is essentially when you have high sugars, and particularly if you have heated high sugars and that type of thing, uh, and you can eat them, and you also produce them yourself. So if your blood sugar is up, you will actually produce advanced glycation end products, and if you heat your uh, uh, sugars and starches, you'll also end up with significant amounts from food. Alcohol, terrific source. And then you can get these environmentally so- environmental sources. Now, apart from UV for the skin, I believe these are generally minor. Um, some may argue against that. I just don't want to get the population fixated on, on that. Um, there was a study done relatively recently uh, looking at the amount of pesticides still available on food here in Australia in relation to uh, uh, pesticides. Uh, from organic versus non-organic, and there wasn't much difference. What is interesting, though, is that I think in a lot of the foods that we produce, and this is a little bit from what we had last night, a lot of the foods that we eat that are actually coming commercially produced, they are, to some extent, deficient in a whole lot of things. I mean, some of the tomatoes taste a little bit better now, but there should be around about 300 different esters. I know some of you will remember what an ester is, but it's one of those kind of you know usually nice, smelly chemical molecules. And an ester makes the thing smell, and you can have you know, an ester smelling like a banana and that type of thing. But tomatoes used to have about 300 types to give a complex flavour. What we're finding now is there's probably only about 80 or so left in there because they've been bred for various different things. So as they've been modified, there's a lot of things that have been left out in order to give them you know, tougher skin and you know, last longer on the shelf and all that sort of stuff. So I think going back to the heirloom varieties, and a lot of heirloom variety actually plants, you know, purple carrots and things like this, were actually much higher coloured. Shame I don't have time to go into those. All right, so in any case, the greatest source of free radicals actually comes from the conversion of the calories we eat, and I'm using calories because uh, I know the Australians will still understand that what it was, but if I used kilojoules, I'm just not sure if our United States colleagues would be aware of what that means. Um, I'm just giving you a hard time. Sorry. Um, so it's the conversion of really the energy that we're taking in into the energy cell needs. Now, you might vaguely recognise this, second-year biochemistry... Sugars and fats, now, of course, I've collapsed about 30 different reactions down into one very simple one, and I'm sure you all enjoyed by chem, but, you know, sugars and fats, essentially this is all it's doing, and essentially this is all you really needed to know, was that these get converted, mixes with a bit of oxygen, can transfer electrons and that sort of thing down through that oxidative phosphorylation, gets that electrons coming through from, uh, from the NADH or at least produces the NADH, that's through oxidative phosphorylation, ultimately allows the ATP production with that proton pump, etc. And what you're left with is the carbon dioxide, which of course breathes out and has an impact on our pH, and then of course water, which is used effectively by the body. Now what's interesting here is that provided all the uh, electrons are transferred efficiently, this is beautiful, it works really nicely. But Now how many people have heard that the mitochondria is a source of free radicals? Some of you? Yeah. Mitochondria is actually the major source of free radicals and oxidative damage. So when people talk about ageing, they often talk about mitochondrial efficiency. Now this is essentially why. Because you get some leakage of superoxide because it hasn't quite converted all of those electrons efficiently. Some problems with like complex 1, complex 4, etc. So you get some of this superoxide coming out the other side. Now that's okay, provided the body can mop it up. And it has things like superoxide dismutase and catalase, which mop it up, make it into water again, and then it's all fine. The trouble is, if it's not, then it does damage again, not only to mitochondrial DNA, but also more peripherally, probably as a result of catalase acting on it, hydrogen peroxide, and ultimately producing, because that diffuses out then, can diffuse out of the cell, diffuses into the mitochondrion. With the presence of all the iron around histones and all that sort of thing, and you know that free iron is a great catalyst for free radical damage, were you aware of that? It's probably one of the major sources of, in fact, red meat, ultimately doing damage within the gut. Um, so having free iron around is not, not a great idea, and that's why some of the iron supplements potentially can be dangerous. So in any case, lots of damage occurring there. I've got to put this plug in. Um, our particular niche area, and my particular niche area of research, is actually around this molecule NAD, which most of you again recognise in relation to that NAD-NADH redox couple. What is interesting is there's two other important things that NAD is needed for. One is DNA repair. So you actually need NAD for an enzyme that's used to repair the DNA. And the other thing is it activates... Remember I told you there was a company that paid $700 million to activate those genes? NAD is the substrate. A gene, of course, is just a factory. You can have that factory. You can produce a million factories. But if you don't have any NAD there, you've got no raw material to make the products that that factory is supposed to make. So in fact, we think, in fact, we're fairly certain that the uh, the patent that was actually originally taken out is actually incorrect. We've tried to get ours published a couple of times and uh, anyway, we'll send it out again. But we've gone to Nature Biotech and Nature this and anyway. Um, maybe we're not quite as famous, but in any case, well, there's pretty good evidence that we're actually correct. So it's actually these NAD that's needed, and NAD... Drops as you get older. But you can also increase it. And just uh, without going into the detail, having lots of dark-coloured fruits and veggies will get it increased because you do need it significantly for DNA repair and you lose an awful lot of it. And you need it for activating these longevity enzymes which are actually linked to cancer surveillance, antioxidant capacity and ultimately preserving cell health. That actually links to a whole host of things there which uh, I'm happy to talk about later if you want to ask questions. So anyway, the point is also that if you will get lots of sugars and fats, not only do you generate lots of this doing lots of damage, you also tie this up, and it's been known for a long time that the NAD-NADH ratio, if it's like this, which is where it goes, lots more NADH, when you have lots more calories, you end up with more NADH, so you've got less available NAD, because this can't do it, you've got less avail- available NAD, and that's thought to be a significant player in that mechanism of reduced cell health. Okay, I hope I haven't bored you. But in any case, that's where it comes through from the diet. That's why the diet is so important. Um, this was a study. Um, this is actually one of my other... Uh, uh, it's actually research assistant, but uh, Amanda was doing the, the study. This is an honour student. She's a fourth-year med student at, at UNSW. And we are no, unquestionably the only group that was presenting to the faculty on uh, the impact of ice cream on health. Um, <laughs> We had a little bit more of a fancy title to try and sort of match up against somebody who was doing G-protein coupled receptors and, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and I, I felt a little bit nervous. It's the first year we've, we've done this um, to actually have a look at it within the, the, the diet and that type of thing. But um, unquestionably, uh, we gave ice cream, and I, I'm not showing you the ice cream just for time, but I just show you the dairy component or the fat component, if you like, and the, and the sugar component. 40% increase within two hours, significant increase after, uh, after two hours here with the sugar, and then uh, rising up to about 30%. There's different mechanisms probably with the fat and sugar that actually increase, and this is oxidative damage. So we're looking at the amount of lipid peroxidation. So basically just as a marker within the tissue, how much tissue damage are we actually seeing uh, within a relatively short period of time? Um, so what we are demonstrating here is that can you increase free radical damage? If free radicals are doing lots of damage to ultimately produce the next generation of poorer cells and increasing our degenerative process and our risk for developing things like heart disease and diabetes and dementia, etc., then how soon? How, where does food actually fit in there? And my question was, you know, you've got the epidemiologists... People like uh, Gary Fraser have done brilliant work showing, you know, this is the pattern of disease. If people are uh, uh, eating this type of thing and living this type of way, then they're likely to develop these types of diseases. And then you've got other colleagues of mine who are sort of working away and they've taken bits of tissue of various types and they've sort of looked at it in the lab and gone, oh, look at that. You know, there's lots of this type of damage, and it's all sort of associated with inflammation and oxidative damage and whatever. I'm saying, yeah, but how does that link with that in a practical sense? Like, how much ice cream could I have one ice cream a, a week, and is it okay? Or could I have, say, for example, a uh, uh, you know a, a muffin at lunchtime, and does it do me any damage? Well, I think really what it seems to show is that in fact every time you eat. Something which is not good for you, that we already know if you have lots of them, you will do the damage. It's not, it is that it accumulates over time, but you actually do the damage straight away. And then you've got to repair it. And then, of course, if you damage on top of it, and a lot of people don't have problems with that, they wake up in the morning and they have bacon and eggs and a coffee. And then at morning tea time, they'll have, uh, you know, a muffin and another coffee. And then at lunchtime, you know, it'll be something else similar. And then the afternoon tea the same. And then the dinner the same. And then it'll be a, a nightcap of it. You know, it might be a beer on the way home and then, uh, uh, you know, a wine before they go to bed. And all of those things are going to increase their oxidative damage. And in fact, they never end up in any kind of postprandial state. What we actually found with here, uh, we looked at a whole host of different inflammatory markers and we looked at changes in, uh, uh, in CD11b and that type of stuff using flow cytometry, etc. cetera. But, uh, oh, is that my time? Okay, I'm going to go much faster then. Um, but we actually found that inflammation actually kicks up a little bit longer after four hours. And so uh, what you're finding is that you're keeping yourself in a state where you take in lots of calories generally and you'll end up in a state of oxidative damage and then that prolonged inflammatory process and then you'll do it again at the next meal. and then So essentially you're always in this state of a subclinical inflammatory process. It's not enough to make you feel sick although I guarantee you won't feel as good as if you ate, as, as we've been told by uh, uh, our colleagues here this morning. But you won't actually be sick, but you will just not feel well. And I think allowing your body to fast, allowing your body to essentially... Oh, incidentally, we actually compared this in an isocaloric way with... Uh, you know avocados have about the same energy density as, as ice cream. So we also fed... We got, the, we got the same group. We actually... This is just a group from the community... Uh, 11 people, and they would come back every two weeks and we would feed them something and then uh, you know, they got to listen to me and, and you know, there was all sorts of uh, exciting things for them to do. But yeah, they came back on a regular basis over the course of... Um, well, we fed them. We actually did finish off by feeding them uh, McDonald's, but uh, I haven't got those results there. It's just because McDonald's are actually, I'll show you a little bit later, very high in advanced glycation end products as well as high in fat. Um, Okay, so significant increase in in inflammation uh, by... um, This is another marker of inflammation. While we didn't see markers coming out until much later, this particular group, which I thought was worth putting up, actually saw inflammatory markers. This is a chemokine uh, ligand, which was actually increased uh, within 30 minutes. So depending on where you're looking at uh, in the the inflammatory process, uh, we didn't look at this directly ourselves. Okay, so this idea of advanced glycation end products. So high calories is one thing. Both sugars and fats seem to do it. What about other things? There's a lot of research that have been around these things called advanced glycation end products, um, produced by sugars reacting with their amino acid groups in proteins and lipids. And that's terrific if you actually want to activate what we call the receptors for advanced glycation end products, which themselves actually stimulate oxidative damage. In fact... People are getting so excited about this. There's a, a couple of pardon me, drug companies that are out there now that have actually produced uh, drugs against the receptor for advanced glycation end products, because these get translocated into the central nervous system. Uh, and what's a the problem there is it's thought to be a primary driver for developing uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, so age content of food is increased with cooking, we know that. and high blood age is concentration. It has been linked to cardiovascular disease, dementia and stroke. So, and I will move faster, just so you get your little look. Um, cheddar cheeses, give you about 1,000, 1,600 or so. Parmesan cheese, I noticed there's some yesterday, uh, 2,500. <laughs> I didn't say anything. Honestly, one of the great things is, is that um, uh, in my position, I tell them, look, I'm not a clinician. It's not my responsibility to tell you what to do. My responsibility is just to tell you, look, this is, uh, this is what's there and this is what will happen. What you do with it is entirely your business. Okay, so milk only 12, so that's not bad. Bread 16. I'll probably still toast my bread at 36. Um, You know, if you fry the egg, you know, uh, 1200, but if you just make an omelette, 27. Uh, Maccas, 1500 for the uh, French fries, and the potatoes, 17. Uh, Bananas, carrots, tomatoes, they're all pretty good. Vegetables, if you uh, grill them, uh, broccoli, carrot and celery, not too bad. Uh, a grilled steak, 6,674. And just in case you're tempted to go Maccas, 7,801. And it's interesting, for those pesco vegetarians, I don't know that I have a fillet here, but the fillet is around about the same as a, as a Big Mac. I don't think I have it. I've just got the, uh, this was a uh, General American Dietary Association, so I don't have a, an Australian burger here, but the Californian burger, veggie burger, was 198 so high advanced glycation end products certainly increase free radical activity and they increase the potential. Yeah. The one you need on this list that isn't there is bacon, fried, five minutes, 91,544. Wow. Absolutely amazing. I wish I had it. If, if it, was in that, it wasn't in that, was actually in that list, which is a shame, from, from that particular publication. It's interesting. If you boil chicken, it's 900. If you bake, if you fry it, it's 9,000. If you barbecue, it goes up to 18,000. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the great Australian barbecue. Um, We don't have one. Um, Unfortunately, there is a lot of things that people are doing damage uh, to themselves just from this. And remember that what you see clinically is what's been accumulating over decades. All right, so how do free radicals uh, affect heart disease? I'll do this quickly. Um, You're all aware of this. It starts off with essentially a fatty streak, and then we've got promotion of that and plaque development. Uh, with infiltration of macrophages, etc. And then we've got uh, a mature plaque developing with uh, you know, your uh, fibrous cap. And then at this point, and this has all been going on silently, of course, over the course of three to four decades, and of course when you get to see them as clinicians, you're actually seeing this type of thing generally, or it might be just beforehand where they're sort of developing angina and that type of thing, so they've got restricted blood flow to various sites around the body. But wouldn't it be great if we could keep them or at least get them back to here and, in fact, even pick them up before they got up to here? Very expensive once they, once they get to here. Uh. Mm. Okay, so now I actually wasn't going to show you this one, so I'm going to step through that one because I think I was going to show you the next one. Right, we've missed out on one slide. Okay, not sure how that happened. But in any case, I had a better slide. But in any case, this is this will do. Um, so um, I forget who was actually talking about it before, but, but essentially looking at it is the oxidised cholesterol, the oxidised LDL that seems to be the bad one. While it still will be initiated, this inflammatory process, with high levels of, of LDL, it's actually the oxidation process, which is why having that sort of postprandial oxidative activity is significant because you've got a much greater potential for this. This is actually picked up by a variety of cells, scavenger receptors, etc., into the endothelial space. Now, what happens is that there is, you know, you get activation of VCAM and ICAM, you ultimately get an infiltration of your uh, white cells, which then they need to digest it. It is an inflammatory process. They are, mac- they are going to phagocytose it, get rid of it. But unfortunately, you also produce then its own kind of oxidative activity for that process. Now, more of those coming in, of course, you generate foam cells and you end up getting a cycle of inflammatory oxidative activity, um, which just very quickly I've shown there, and then you get uh, you know, infiltration and that type of thing with free iron, which actually makes that even worse. So ultimately, this is a, a very... Uh, if you keep feeding this process, and I guess that was the key thing, if this were just occurring once a month or something like that, your body's actually able to cope with it and ultimately, I think, be able to get rid of the, the damaged material and you wouldn't ever, ever end up with a, a, a mature plaque. The trouble is, if you're doing it on a regular basis, and I think that's at every meal, it's a little bit like coming, somebody coming out and sort of damaging your, your, your garden out the front. If they just do it once, you won't even think about it. You go and patch it up and that's all right. But if they do it you know, three times a day... You'll eventually have to bring in some heavy machinery in order to repair all of the damage. That machinery itself does a lot of damage, which is exactly what's happening here. And in fact, it gets to a point where you just go, it's all too much. I can't repair it. And that seems to be what's happening generally uh, here. So bottom line is the mature plaque formed through repeated inflammatory oxidative damage at a rate greater than the body's capacity to repair it. And the primary stimulus for this inflammation occurs, it seems, at each meal. Uh, We'd certainly argue that. So anyway, key points, free radicals cause damage to the cell, increasing risk of heart disease, cancer and dementia. Uh, High-calorie foods, high fat and sugar, increases free radical damage. Uh, Foods with high advanced glycation end products, the fried foods, can increase free radical damage. And what happens if we reduce it? Now, you guys already know this, and I'm not going to give you much more information here. But uh, some of you may have seen this publication, which came out in Science, It's sort of been expected for some years. They've kept these uh, macaques alive for a long period of time. They actually had two groups. Uh, They were fed exactly the same food here, which is interesting. They were fed the same food, which wasn't too bad. They had plenty of veggies and that sort of stuff in there. These guys were allowed to eat whatever they liked when they liked. These guys were given 30% less food at uh, discrete times. In fact, I think both they were given at discrete times of the day, actually. Uh, but these were given 30% less. In fact, they started off in the first month, they gave them 10% less. So they, they got what every, every animal's baseline was. Then each animal was the, the ones that ended up in this group here. Uh, they gave them 10% less the next month, then 10% less, more or less, the next one. And then by that third month, 30% less. And they kept them on that. And this is over the course of, of uh, a number of decades. And what did they find? Uh, reduced mortality greater than 80% or at least 80% of the calorie-restricted animals were still alive after 20 years compared to only 50% of this group, uh, and delayed onset of uh, things like diabetes, etc. So 70% of these calorie-restricted animals were free of any lifestyle disease at the end of the 20-year study, compared to only 20%. In other words, 80% of these animals already had some form of lifestyle disease, even the ones that were still alive. Which just means that calorie restriction on its own has a significant impact. All right, so positive lifestyle changes certainly reduce free radical damage. We know that based on uh, grains and legumes, vegetables and fruit intake, it reduces and reduced fat. We do get a decrease in oxidative stress activity, and it can reverse atherosclerosis. Uh, Dr Esselstyn was mentioned before in his publications, I think, are well known. But there is no question that it is reversible. And what is is surprising is that uh, that is not more widely known. All right. Exercise increases antioxidant capacity. It does. It puts up things like superoxide dismutase, etc. Decreases inflammation, decreases oxidative stress, and reduces the stress response. We don't have time to talk about that, unfortunately. So main points: reducing calorie intake, 10 to 30 percent, cut down high uh, ages, eat a plant-rich diet, plenty of dark-colored fruits and veggies. Happy to talk about that, and exercise regularly. The only thing that I'll add in here: a lot of Adventists like, you know, we will do aerobic exercise. I think it is very important, for various reasons, to actually do weight-bearing exercise as well, particularly from middle age. All right, so just thought I'd show you this one. This is the uh, published in Circulation uh, last year. Uh, this is the number of deaths in thousands. This is in the United States from 1900 to 2007. And what I found fascinating from here is notice when it goes up. So if we look at this as a marker of lifestyle disease, the death from cardiovascular disease, picks up right after 1900. Um, I just found this really interesting. Ministry of Healing was uh, was published in 1905. And, of course, the very instruction that was going to tell us how to prevent lifestyle disease, not only for ourselves but for everybody else. I mean, every Adventist should be down here. And I should say every Adventist and their friends should be down here. Okay, so while uh, I've only talked about this, of course, you're aware of all of these others, some fascinating things that we've found in relation to particularly adolescent behaviour. That should have shifted across too. That's tea and coffee, so this is, sorry, the older version. But uh, caffeine intake for, for adolescents particularly and alcohol intake. Damage within uh, you know, brain cells within uh, 10 minutes, even below 0.05. Uh, so one of my honours students did that. She got first class this year as well, so that worked well. Okay, so this is just the final model, and I'll finish off with this one. Essentially, the population and all of us assume we're physically well, um, I think a strong argument can be made that if there is this oxidative inflammatory process, we will not be well. Uh, in fact, that will actually create disease continuing over decades. You may or may not get a high cholesterol. I think all of you are aware that probably 20% of people who develop cardiovascular disease actually have a normal or low cholesterol. Uh, develop acute clinical symptoms. Obviously, having a high cholesterol and any sort of oxidative background is much greater risk because of your, you've got greater potential for oxidative damage and, and that sort of thing. But Okay, at that point, the patient seeks the medical assistance. Then there'll be an intervention, uh, whether it's pharmaceutical or just or, or a combination of various things. There'll be some generally tacit uh, uh, lifestyle intervention. Um, but mostly, unless we know that we've actually done something here, we're actually putting this patient back into a cycle of disease. I've given the term medical recidivism. They keep re-offending. Um, you know, and that's really, you know... Look, at a financial point of view, and I've had people say this to me at The Sand... You know, but but don't we want that? That makes more money. Um, Look, I think you'll have plenty of patients if you can even get 10% of people back this way. And that's really where we want to take them, and I think that's uh, where we should be spending our time. But we actually don't know, I think, whether or not we brought them back there well enough. Because once they are well, they will age well. But it's this that's the issue. How much of that do we look at? The current medical model doesn't really do much in that. The current medical model simply sends people back here. Of course, the purpose of this conference, I know uh, with your practices, the intention is to actually take them back here. But we need to deal with this, and I think it's a reasonable way of being able to look at it. I think we can actually diagnose this. So rather than actually and, and you know, with uh, uh, Dr. Howe's patients, Leo and, and the 79-year-old lady, you know they're already up here. It would be great if we could have got them you know, way back here, or at least you know here, to get them back and back to here. Um, so anyway, World Health Organisation, I'll leave that out, State of Complete Physical, Mental, Social Wellbeing. So they're aware of what it all means now in terms of what real health is, which is the same definition as what we would have. But essentially Adventist healthcare should be the ones that are setting the, we should be setting the pattern. You know, I, I tell them at the sand, we need a lifestyle medicine, I, I prefer it, a lifestyle medicine research centre there, because we should be taking the 50,000 patients, and going to be 100,000 soon, coming through those doors And we should be able to at least navigate as many as possible through to a lifestyle centre, which is going to be able to show them how to stay well. Now, some of them might track back here, but if we could get even 5%, we would be saving not only them a lot of uh, heartache and problems, but we would also be saving, I think, uh, the, the healthcare system and the insurers. But this is really where we want to be able to get them, and so we need to be able to provide that facility, both within the clinic as well as in, and that is it. All right, so I'll leave you with that one. My zero-minute tag has come up. As we near the close of time, we must rise higher and still higher on the question of health reform and Christian temperance, presenting it in a more positive and decided manner. We must strive continually to educate the people not only by our words but by our practice. And I thought it was a great thing to get the tape out there uh, today. Um, Precept and practice uh, combined have a telling influence. Thank you very much. This media was brought to you by Audioverse